Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Megan Gibson, executive editor, foreign in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C., and I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 7th of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we're discussing gun violence in America following multiple shootings during 4th of July celebrations. Before I left for Europe, I signed a law, the first real gun safety law in 30 years. And things will get better still, but not without more hard work together. Y'all heard what happened. Y'all heard what happened today. But each day, we're reminded there's nothing guaranteed about our democracy. How did politicians respond, and how will voters? Then we turn to Russia's war in Ukraine. The Russian army does not take any breaks. It has one task, to take people's lives, to intimidate people, so that even a few days without an air alarm already feel like part of the terror. What is happening in the country's east? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, we know there's a lot going on. UK politics for UK listeners, and we thank you for tuning in to World Review. Let us get right into it. On the 4th of July, celebrations in Highland Park, a heavily Jewish neighborhood outside of Chicago, were interrupted by a mass shooting. Yet another young white man with yet another gun killed several people. President Joe Biden responded to the event, which we just heard, by noting that it was a reminder of how fragile American democracy is. A few hours later, there was yet another high-profile shooting this time at 4th of July celebrations in Philadelphia. I know what my gut response to this was, but Katie, I'm always interested to hear from you on this as you live here but didn't grow up here or not from here, have maybe not, I don't know, accepted it as normal in the way that maybe I have on some level. Yes, yeah, I'm a recent implant to the United States. I did not grow up in a flag-waving culture. And so 4th of July celebrations to me here are still quite novel. And I, on Monday, took my toddler to our local 4th of July parade. He had a great time riding around in his wagon with red, white and blue bunting on and looking at fire engines. And when we got 
home, I heard the news as everybody else did that another parade north of much further north of here in Illinois was the focus of a mass shooting. So my initial response was just horror looking at the pictures of there too. Young kids had cast their bicycles aside, looking at the footage of people running for cover, the marching band suddenly sprinting from gunshots. It's horrifying. But I think my other emotion was just a lack of surprise. It wasn't surprising to me that a 4th of July parade would be the target of a mass shooting. And it did occur to me as we were heading out the door. I know there have been attacks on public events in the past. So I just want to, for me, I think it's worth reflecting on how wholly abnormal and just what a terrifying situation it is. That should be one of the thoughts that crosses your mind when you head out with your children to an event which is meant to celebrate America's founding is, will this be safe? So, you know, it is continually shocking to me here that the response to this, when I particularly when I talk to American colleagues, often is to explain why it will be so difficult for anything to happen. Why, even after the Uvalde school massacre, why this has still not therefore met some sort of boundary or breaking point where there needs to be a real shift in the approach towards guns in this country. So perhaps that is a way to, to tee up you to tell us exactly that and to look at what the political response to this has been and whether we are any closer to, to a turning point. Because I know part of Joe Biden's response was to point to the recent bipartisan gun legislation. Are we approaching a, a turning point? Do you think this will be any different from any of the many other mass shootings that we have already experienced this year in this country? I guess I would say three things. The first is, I said at the top there that this was a heavily Jewish community, which it is. We do not know that the shooter was motivated by anti-Semitism per se, but it has been reported that this same person was around a synagogue and acting suspicious enough not too long ago and had been asked to leave by security. So I guess I say this because the first, the issue is guns. But it's, but I think if you're anybody anywhere in the United States who thinks that guns are, who recognizes that guns are, are a weapon meant to kill, you feel unsafe walking around. But I think especially if you're a member of any kind of minority or any kind of other community, there is that extra layer to it. The second thing I would say is that to Katie's point, this was a very public gathering. This was a celebration. I think a society it would like I I sometimes explain to people who are not from here or not here that you have to you have to disassociate because if you thought about how dangerous it was you would just never leave your home. But I I do think that the prevalence of violence at public gatherings it 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 undercuts faith in the public sphere by which I both mean confidence in our politicians in our public actors to do anything about it but also just like our physical public sphere don't feel safe being in public which is not healthy for a society because you don't want people just isolating you don't want people afraid to go to take their toddler to a parade tragically in the case of Highland Park one toddler was orphaned because his parents brought him to a parade which is unthinkable and also something that just happened and the third thing I would say is that I was really disappointed by Biden's remarks. You want to point to this watered-down bipartisan gun legislation that people were patting themselves on the backs for that fundamentally did not, would not have stopped this shooting and will not stop other shootings. You still have assault rifles. You have, I, I think, I, we have a piece on this that we'll 
He'll put in the show notes to this on Friday, as we discussed, Friday the 24th, Roe v. Wade was overturned. That actually might be felt at, by Republicans at the ballot box because the aftershocks of it will be so great. And we'll, even though abortion was already inaccessible, as we've said on this podcast, there's a difference between inaccessible and illegal. And it could upend American life enough such that it changes things in swing states. The day before that, on the 23rd of June, the Supreme Court struck down this New York law that said you have to have a really good reason to carry a concealed weapon. States' rights, unless it's to keep people safe from gun violence. Unfortunately, that does not fundamentally shake up the nature of the United States in the same way. These were tragedies, but I think we've gotten so used to, even though every time we say, oh my goodness, this is so horrible, even though, it, it, and it is horrible, and it is unthinkable, and it is wild to me that this is, that we just accept this as, as like, it, but I think because it's so prevalent and because it's so awful and because it seems so insurmountable, it does not, it does not serve as enough of a, uh, a shift or a change or a break in a way that will be a motivating factor for people to vote. And it's clearly not enough of a motivating factor for politicians because the first gun control legislation in decades that they passed, I think was pretty, I'm glad they did something. There's, there are many somethings that, there are many somethings that they could be doing that, that they're not. I will chime in as an outsider, someone who's living in the UK. I'm not American. I didn't grow up in the US. I have also become so accustomed with mass shootings and shooting violence in the US that the shooting as well didn't surprise me. And neither did the response of a lot of the Republican commentators, Republican politicians in the wake of it. But I was maybe surprised isn't the right word after we've had months of this now, but the tepid response from Democrats that just does not match the moment that there's just a real lack of urgency. And it just makes you wonder if they can't get, if they're not meeting a moment such as mass death of innocent civilians or the stripping of rights of all American women, if they can't meet the urgency of those moments, what value do they have as politicians? And just the actual insult to tell people who are just going through tragedies is to vote. That's not until November. What's happening now? Why are they so ineffective as politicians that they cannot inspire people in this moment instead of looking four, four months down the line? One thing that occurred to me while Meg was speaking, and then I have another question for you, Megan, which is the thing that occurred to me is that whenever this happens, you have Republican politicians, right wing figures who come out and say, it's not the guns, it's mental illness. It's not the gun. It's it's I think some of them blamed antidepressants this time, which like is not, I don't think, a healthy response. Some of them, Tucker Carlson, quite gallingly, in my opinion, blamed women for lecturing men. And the thing is, I don't disagree that video game, the violence of video games is perhaps an issue. I don't disagree. I actually don't disagree that I think it, that there is a problem with how young men are conditioned in America, right? Like, I, I think it is very unhealthy that young men in this country are basically told by the political right that they're basically only good for strength and for violence. I think that is a problem. But first of all, there are young men all over the world. And this does not happen all over the world. And second of all, I know you're not serious about addressing that problem either, because you haven't done that either. So you're actually not interested in creating more ro robust mental health systems. You're not interested in introducing young men to, to a feminism that might like 
free them from uh, feeling isolated and feeling lonely and feeling like the only thing they could do is buy a gun. And you're not interested in tackling the, act- tackling, excuse me, the actual problem, which is gun violence. So it, and I think it, it just increasingly, it's rung hollow for literal decades now, but at this point it's, it's a parody of itself. But Megan, I wanted to ask you, there was also recently a shooting in Denmark. While we're speaking about pol- the response of politicians, how did politicians respond there? And how did you think it stood in contrast to the response of the United States? The political statements, Meta Fredrickson, the prime minister, in, in looked at one light, it could almost be looked at as the version of a, the Danish version of thoughts and prayers. She talked about unity, communities to come together. But in my mind, that's allowed because the policies in Denmark are already in place. They have some of the strictest gun restrictions in all of Europe. They have a near total ban on assault rifles. You have to have a license to have a gun. Licenses are usually only given for hunting or sporting purposes. And the result of that is clear. Mass shootings do not really happen. The one on July 4th where someone, a Danish man, history of mental illness, shot up a shopping mall, killed three people, injured four. It's a tragedy. It's horrible. But this is also the first mass shooting in seven years. So for Republican politicians to point to that and say, look, gun control doesn't work. There are still mass shootings. It's just an absolute disgusting exploitation of an, a tragedy that is a complete rarity for right. another country. Right. Whereas here, it is in fact so common that while news was still coming out of Highland Park, reports also came that there was a shooting in Philadelphia during July 4th celebrations. Like you, it wasn't even a one-off for high-profile celebration-based July 4th, 2022 shootings. And Emily, correct me if I'm wrong, but three deaths isn't even considered a mass shooting in the U.S., isn't it? So It's four. Technically, by U.S. standards, there was no mass shooting in Denmark because it's just so, that, an incident like that is so, it's so ordinary common. that it's yes. not worth differentiating. Right, exactly. And I just wanted to also add in that it's also just illogical as an argument. If the argument is it's not the guns, it's the mental health epidemic that is killing people, if you acknowledge there is a very serious problem with mental health, would it the first step then be to make it very difficult for people who might be suffering a mental health crisis to access an assault weapon? So it doesn't even make sense as a as a response to these shootings. Emily, we were talking before this podcast about the response of the Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzker. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, it struck me, he, his response was struck a real contrast to Joe Biden. And he is one of the few people who is not responding to a shooting by saying, this is not the time to talk about this. This is the time to offer thoughts and prayers. He is saying, no, there is no better time to talk about this. Let us talk about this. I think what really made his remarks stand out is that he spoke really in terms, obviously he's the governor of where this happened, of the place where this happened. And he's also a name that's been floated to run in 2024 for president. He's not said that he will not do that, which is to say that he's leaving that that open. And he came out with a statement of real anger and further basically told the NRA, say that we don't like, I don't even want to hear this from you. And to really, if he were president, would he be doing things differently? I don't know. I don't know because of the structural limitations. And actually, we have a piece on that by Owen Higgins. We will put that in the show notes as well. But I think just the fact that people are contrasting Pritzker's remarks and Biden's remarks, like people are really angry. We're expected to live like this. We are expected to not know if you take your toddler to a 
parade or to a celebration, will he be orphaned? Like, that is absurd. And in response, you told people to vote? This country is, it's, it sounds like there's no way to say it without sounding hysterical, but it's, it's just, it, it feels like we're coming apart by violence, both, again, metaphorical and also very real and tangible. And you're just, and the response is not meeting the moment. And so I think that when a politician responds with disbelief, responds with anger, it's almost, unfortunately, because people are so angry because of the absurdity of the system in which we find ourselves, it's welcome. We will leave that there. We will put the two pieces that we mentioned in the show notes. And now we are going to move on farther afield from D.C. Russian aggression in Ukraine has lately been focused on Slavyansk, a city in Donetsk, part of Ukraine's east. Russian forces are now engaged in the heavy shelling of Donetsk as they had been in the neighboring region of Luhansk. Katie, what does this mean? Well, so the most significant developments in the last couple of weeks, just to bring people up to speed who have not been following it so closely, is the capture of the last two major cities in the Luhansk region. So this was Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, which means that Russia now effectively controls all of the Luhansk region, which is one of the two regions right next to the Russian border, which nominally precipitated this. So when Vladimir Putin gave his reasons, first of all, for going into Ukraine, it was to defend civilians in the Luhansk and Donetsk regions, which he claimed, who he claimed falsely were subject to a genocide. So being able to lay claim to Luhansk does give him something he can call a victory. It is a it is an objective that has been met by Russian forces and it is enabling them now to shift their focus south to Donetsk. So the two regions, Luhansk and Donetsk, that combined make up what is commonly referred to as the Donbass. Now the focus shifts south towards Slovyansk, which was fought over I spent time reporting on the ground there in, in 2014. It was one of the first cities that the Russian-backed separatists took control of in early 2014. Ukrainian forces then took it back that summer and have held it since. It will not be a quick battle. I think one thing to say while we are seeing undeniably Russian gains is that they are very slow. The word incremental is the one that people are, are mostly using about the situation and they are coming at a very heavy cost. I think it's important to say that with Severodonetsk in particular and Lysychansk, this was not this sort of formidable Russian war machine that we were all told about prior to February moving inexorably through Luhansk region. This was a real cobbled together force. The military analyst Michael Kaufman has talked about this as really being made up of forces from within the separatist republic themselves, from within the self-proclaimed Luhansk People's Republic, mercenaries from the Wagner Group, Chechen border guards, recently contracted reservists. So there is clearly a real manpower issue on the Russian side. And it is absolutely predictable that they would now be turning towards Slovyansk and then further south from that Krematorsk, which Ukrainian forces have spent and are continuing to spend considerable effort reinforcing and preparing to defend. I think the significant point that we are now reaching in the conflict is a real shift in tempo. And we actually saw Putin acknowledge that he met with his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, after what they're, what they're calling a, as the fall of the Luhansk region, and talked about the forces involved taking some time to rest and to increase their combat capabilities. I don't think that 
means he is anywhere close to seriously entering peace negotiations, but it certainly is a reflection of the very real issues that Russia is having with manpower. It's moving much more to a kind of long-range artillery-based mode of war, but short of declaring it a full public, a full mobilization, which Putin has been reluctant to do. They are running into real problems with manpower. The issue for Ukraine and countries supporting Ukraine is that they need to keep up the sense that this is that they are still going to be able to make gains, that they mm-hmm. are going to be able to mount counteroffensive, uh, counteroffensives, and they are also suffering real issues with their capabilities now and making very urgent pleas for weapon systems, for ammunition. So Ukraine needs considerable urgent help to be able to continue to put up a fight and to slow the Russian advance. So we're, we are moving into a slower phase of the conflict and more towards a sort of attritional phase of the war, or I guess a war of attrition more broadly. But that doesn't mean we're we're really anywhere close to a conclusion. This could still be a could still be a, a very long conflict over at least months, perhaps years to come. Lawrence Friedman has a great piece on this on the website, which we can put into the show notes, which is well worth people reading. But really, you know, I think the one of the immediate issues for Ukraine is sustaining now. I'd be interested to know what you each think about this. Sustaining international support, sustaining unity over the longer term and as the costs of the conflict are felt increasingly beyond Ukraine's borders as well. One of the things that really struck me from Lord Friedman's piece that you just mentioned was The fact that he said that now that so many Western nations have really bandied around Ukraine and that was kind of solidified with the German Chancellor Macron, Italy's president going to Kiev just a few weeks ago, that that this is really now, you know, fully, it always has been, but it's fully seen internally as well as a Western-backed war and that Ukraine's loss would be seen as the loss for NATO. And that really struck me is that for all the talk we have about how unified the West really is and are they all on the same page and how long can that last, it's, I think we've gone to the point where I can't really imagine that there would be a Western, an influential Western nation now really making the point of stepping back. Now, whether they're actually meeting the urgency and giving the necessary levels of support that Ukraine needs right now to sustain the, the, the war is another question. But that, that, that resonated with me because there's a lot of logic to that, I think. There is logic there. And it's one that, because it's counterintuitive in a way, because you would think that Ukraine is in this sort of paradox where, because it's now in this sort of, not stalemate, but this different phase of war that's slower and longer and more drawn out, it needs Western support more than ever. But on the other hand, because it's slower and longer and more drawn out, perhaps it's harder for the West to see, the so-called West, to see the urgency. So that's a, an interesting sort of counterpoint. What I would ask, Katie, before we move to our related You Ask Us, it just seems that if Putin had done this from the beginning, if he had just moved on the East, Maybe the response from Ukraine's allies and partners is not as dramatic, not as full-throated. Maybe Ukraine is not allowed to begin the the journey toward the EU. Maybe Finland and Sweden don't try to join NATO. 
because it's not seen as an all-out assault on Ukraine. What do you make of that? This is where we were going to end up anyway. Why sort of undercut your own military and rally the Western world by attacking Kiev and Lviv? Well, I also, I mean, I distinctly remember discussing this in the podcast before the invasion, a price to pay for something that Putin functionally had already. There, there were these well-established separatist enclaves, which were not in serious danger of being retaken by Ukraine anytime soon. So <laughs> mortgaging Russia's future, sending thousands of young Russians to their deaths, tanking the Russian economy for who knows how many years to come is an extraordinarily high price to pay for Luhansk and Donetsk, which makes me think that we shouldn't be soothed or concerns shouldn't be assuaged that this is all that this is about, that if Putin is able to lay claim to the full Donbass, that his appetite will be sated, Ukraine can continue on its westward trajectory and Ukrainians can go back to living peaceful, happy lives. I think this was, I think there is no question that the initial offensive was absolutely catastrophically planned and had really no real world prospects for success. But I think this was always about not having Ukraine as a sovereign state leave Russia's orbit, become what Putin sees as a threat to Russia right on its border. He's in the process of dismembering Ukraine. And I think it, it may be that there is an operational pause as and when he's able to take more territory in the east, but he is not going to be satisfied as long as Ukraine is a functioning sovereign country. He may be prepared to accept a small part of Ukraine continuing. People have talked about a, a rump region had, with the capital in Lviv surviving, but this is about fundamentally making it, making it impossible for Ukraine to function plunging Ukraine into a future that is turmoil, the permanent threat of renewed conflict, real questions about access to the Black Sea coast, long-term structural damage to the Ukrainian economy. So look, I think the immediate objectives have shifted to what to what can be done. And we I think we're gonna you know, I think we're gonna continue to see the focus be on the East for certainly months, perhaps longer to come. But I don't think Putin isn't done with Ukraine. He hasn't fundamentally shifted his idea that it is a country with the right to exist. He sees it in his own words. He's talked about the difference between sovereign states and colonies. He sees Ukraine as a country that is up for grabs. And it's a question of whether Russia controls it or the West does. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, 
obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On that same note of Ukraine's future, we are going to move now to a segment that we like to call... You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Really nicely done. Loved it. Okay. That sounded sarcastic, but I meant it. So, you know, the question that we had from our listener this week was, Boris Johnson, very popular in Ukraine, a new, different prime minister who is not Boris Johnson, mean for British support for Ukraine and Ukraine generally. Megan, since you are in London, we will start with you. Well, I mean, anyone listening to this podcast or, you know, not living under a rock will know it's been a very tumultuous week for Boris Johnson. Lots of internal domestic turmoil going on. But for the focus of this question, yes, Boris Johnson is incredibly popular in Ukraine. I mean, we have a piece in this week's magazine. We have a a diary from Ukraine by the writer Boris Glassman. And he talks about everywhere he goes, people people would learn he was British. He would be met with chants of Boris, Boris, Boris. And he just realized that's when he was in a completely different world because, you know, contrasting to that, to the sentiments at home, it's very different. And I mean, there's a poll found that Boris Johnson was the most 
popular foreign leader in Ukraine with support at 90%, which only put him 3% behind Zelensky. So he's almost as popular as their own president. So I know that there's a lot of, you know, kind of worry or, or a sentiment from Ukrainians. You see it on social media that without Boris Johnson, they would be losing a huge international supporter. But I think that's something that's really needs to be said is that Boris Johnson and the turmoil of the UK government is not in the long run good for Ukraine. I mean, support for Ukraine is UK wide. It's it's not he's not the singular figure who's been leading that charge. And Anoush uh, Shaklin, our colleague at the New Statesman, she wrote a really good piece that looked at Boris Johnson's government's really dismal policies when it came to welcoming Ukrainian refugees. So he's not consistent in his support. And a lot of people have complained that he kind of, you know, uses the Ukrainian war and the Ukrainian people as his own kind of, you know, shield to deflect criticism. So whenever things have gotten particularly heated at home or the new scandal has erupted, sure enough, a couple hours later, they've released that, oh, he's on a plane to Kiev or, oh, he's just had a call with um, Vladimir Zelensky. So, I mean, it, it that is quite crass. And while I'm, I'm, I'm sure Ukraine does not care about the background of what support they're getting, as long as they're getting the support elsewhere, it is deeply, deeply crass and a horrible thing to see uh, a war being exploited in that way. I don't know if either of you have thoughts. I guess I would just say, I'm not being British, but I just have a really hard time imagining that a new prime minister would not be supportive of Ukraine. In the same way that I think, yes, like in the United States, I actually can see the concern because we just had Trump, who ultimately was made to do the right thing on Ukraine or the what Ukraine wanted it to do, which was not hijack their country for domestic political gain and provide lethal aid. Like even in that scenario where you had somebody who was so friendly to Putin and so self-interested, the structures in place, even in this country, were able to mobilize to provide support for Ukraine. So I could see it more with the U.S. I, I just have a hard time imagining that somebody who knows that this is a popular position in Britain and is already inheriting a tumultuous domestic political situation is going to break. Yeah, the only conceivable way for me to imagine that scenario is if it was in the realm of possibility of having a Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister, which it's not in the realm of possibility. So any any functional, practical, realistic prime minister that we will have in the UK in the next weeks, months, who knows, will almost guaranteed be giving the same level of support to Ukraine. And if you want to build this as a fight of democracy against autocracy, it helps to have the democracies be robust and functioning and serving their own people that they can also try to help the wider world. I know that's a bit idealistic, but ideally you have a functioning government at home as well as support for, for causes abroad. I think that's a really crucial point. I think one could argue that Boris Johnson has done a very good job of taking credit for the British support for Ukraine. But there's no reason to think that would change under a new British prime minister. And that actually, as you've both pointed out, the dysfunction and division in British politics only emboldens 
authoritarian regimes, it is only helpful to people like Vladimir Putin to see the UK consumed by its own domestic political scandal. So it is in both British interests and Ukrainian interests to have a functioning government in the United Kingdom, which should not be a controversial statement. Megan, we'll give you the last word on this. I was just going to point out, yes. And while there are such scandals and divisions and just absolute chaos and turmoil in, in UK government, it means that the broader function of you know foreign policy, diplomacy is not being addressed. And that kips away at Western unity in, in a lot of ways. You know, the UK is, is divided with the US, is divided with the EU. So without that kind of, you know, solidarity, that works to weaken, you know, support for Ukraine as well in a more indirect way, but a real, a real tangible way, I think. All right. With that, Megan, can you get us out of here? Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send in yours at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Amir Tibon, an Israeli journalist with Haaretz, on Prime Minister Yair Lapid and the immediate future of Israeli politics. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars. That's five stars only. And leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.